Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Welcome to episode 47 of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Thank you for joining me. Uh, this is a pre-recorded episode this weekend, which is why it's dark in this room. and It'll soon be light on the uh, next uh, uh, the next few moments here when we bring in James C.D. Robbins, production designer and art director. This man is a wealth of production knowledge and designs. We've included a number of his pieces uh, for this episode as we go through the conversation. I really hope uh, you enjoy this discussion. I'm really hoping to have him back later on because, I mean, his information just uh, keeps on going. So for this particular episode, uh, we had uh, fan com- uh, questions submitted in advance. Uh, so uh, if you don't run away, you know, we're still going to be having the live chat at youtube.com slash dialthegate as always. And that's only going to be available uh, for the first run of this episode. So go in there and, and hang out with your friends and see what's going on with them. Uh, and uh, then afterwards, we're going to be showing off some Stargate art from the fan community and talking up uh, Dial the Gate's new merchandise portal. I really appreciate uh, your help with that. Without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and bring in James C.D. Robbins. Oh, and um, uh, once this episode is over, after the end credits, there's a little bonus at the end when he first come on, came on and saw all of the, uh, the Stargate things that he basically helped design. So stick around for that at the very, very end of the episode. James C.D. Robbins, everyone. Enjoy. Art director, production designer, James C.D. Robbins. Welcome, sir, to my parlor of your lost toys, your island of yes. lost toys. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, David. It's a pleasure. It's a tremendous pleasure to have you. I mean, I I, I could just go on and on with all my little <laughs> toys here. I mean, the, you, whispers. there's whispers, right? Yeah. And can you name this one? Uh, ancient tablet, right? Is, exactly. Is the, the, name the, the name on the drawing. <laughs> uh, this was. Um, this was Chimera, and I don't know if you'll recognize this one. Oh, Kino? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> what was yeah, it? Just don't, don't ask me episodically. Oh, I really right, exactly. remembering the episode. Oh, you got whispers? That's pretty darn oh. good. So, <laughs> I love that dog. What was it like working on such an epic project for such a protracted you know period of time? Stargate? It's one of those anomalies in the industry where, you know, it lasted well over a decade. These projects, I mean, I, they are out there, but they are few and far between. What yeah. was that like? Uh, peaking early. <laughs> um, <laughs> Stargate was literally my first union job. Oh. And I'd done some design work previous to that as a production designer and some independents and movies and stuff. And I put my information into the union and they categorized me as an illustrator because of my proficiency with a pencil. Um, so I was, I was a little 
actually taking them back and say, well, I'm a production designer, guys. And no, 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 you're an illustrator because I haven't done anything in their world. Oh, jeez. So, exactly. So I put in my union thing and I got my category or categorization, if you will, and promptly went back to work doing exactly what I was doing at that time, which was more television commercials and indie work. And heard almost nothing about it until a year later. It was almost time for me to, like, redo my permit status and i got a phone call from bridget mcguire saying did you want to come down and have an interview so i went down and I stargate i'm like wasn't that a movie i had no idea i had no idea that there was a series whatsoever so there they were going into season six and right. i'm like wow you guys got some history already which became quite the hurdle that i had to, you know vault over crash course uh, getting, more like getting it. up to speed yeah well, exactly it was like the first two days was just me watching videos trying to get a sense of the show and the sense of uh, you know the, the incredible uh, layered history that they'd already put together in the first five seasons so and i i want to talk about the lead-in to to your arrival it's just um an impressive body of work, truly. I mean, the the amount of stuff that you were expected to put out on a weekly basis. I I really don't know how you know your head didn't fly off your shoulders, especially honestly, honestly David. It was uh, it was the best thing ever. I, I went home after a couple of days and went, "Oh my god, they just want me to draw! I can't believe it, and they're going to pay me." <laughs> yeah, that's so, true. But forty day- episodes a year for three years, James. Oh, we did oh a bunch, God. man. It was, it was, and and quite honestly, they brought me on as the illustrator in yeah. season six. I was art directing in season seven, and and for the next few years until I got the uh, production design uh, gig again. But I retained the position of illustrator. I, I felt like that's part of my whole design process is to put a pencil in my hand and do the drawings and what comes out on the page half the time. I don't even know what it's going to be when I start. So you really, that's, that's the whole process. I mean, I, yeah, I get a script and it's like, there was one that was actually quite funny. Um, Paul Molly. I don't remember the episode. Just give me information. It'll come. Um, well, it might've been part of the uh, whole Bolokai thing and missing. Okay. It was shot in the same location. I know okay. that Latimer, but there was this creature which was described in the script as something across between a squid and a gopher. And I'm like, what the hell does that look like? And so Taylor's supposed to I, eat it. I pre- exactly, exactly. So I drew this. Yeah, they had to, you had to skewer it with a spear and the whole bit. So I drew this laughable drawing, which Paul Mully actually found so entertaining that he pulled it out and he put it on his wall in his office. But it was... <laughs> It was ridiculous. It was this large-eyed sort of gopher thing with squid-like tentacles. And a big mouth on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was ridiculous. So obviously, and and that was one of my learning curves in this, was that no drawing is unwarranted or a bad drawing because they all lead you closer to what it is that you want to be arriving at. So even if it's like, no, this this is not it. We didn't want this. We wanted... And then you get more input and you get more direction that way. I sold that creature in prop works years at <laughs> uh, prop works years later. And let me tell you something. It was still uh, uh, slimy and fresh. So no, the, the, these things were, were made before date. <laughs> right. The thing that blows me away about your work 
And it's it's a testament to that whole production team that they had um, going for them. And the production process is the quality of some of this stuff. I mean, the metal, the engine, this is metal, the engineering that it takes to create some of these things. You guys had a whole fabrication department. Everything, everything was set up and in-house. Like I I walked into that and that was, that was a beautiful thing. And then over the first five years that I was on the show, Atlantis came along, Mm -hmm. infrastructure increased uh, we had to find new lockups uh, just for storage of all the stuff that we were producing. But the model shop, Gord Bellamy and, and company, oh, my God. Like water cut, CNC, you name it. They, 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 they could do it all. They had a 3D scanner before anybody was even talking about that kind of thing. Man. So to have those technologies, there was nothing that I could draw that they couldn't produce. And the fact that you draw it. And within, and I, I want to talk about the time frame as well. Within weeks or months, it is willed into solid reality. I think if there is a, a, a single mind blowing thing, Martin Garrow and I talked about this as well. If there's a single mind blowing thing about that process, is that the writer and you think it, and then it exists. I mean, how do you ever get over that? That is I never, so cool. I never have, and I hope I never do. I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy shop when I when they bring me these things, and you know, and. of the time it was either exactly what I'd drawn or they had to make certain slight changes in order to make it work in the real world. Like one of the very first thing that I wound up, one of the first things that I drew when, when I was brought into the show as an illustrator, uh, there was this device that was being fired into the gate at the SGC from another planet yeah, and I had to draw draw these things with all the exact evolution. And I'd draw these things that Bridget described to me, and I drew them in a whole bit. Then she goes, "Okay, now at this end, they need this EMG generator, electromagnetic pulse hey, EMP generator at this end, back. and that's going to be in the gate room as, as the protective shield at the end of this thing. And, and, and that's how they're going to shut down this device. And, I'm, and Bridget goes, "Okay, we'll draw something up for that." So I drew up something as an illustration. She goes, now can you draft that out so they can build it? And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, illustrator, hello. One year of drafting in high school 30 years ago. <laughs> but she goes, oh, you'll figure it out. And she wasn't wrong. I mean, all I had to do, I, everybody left the art department and I'm pulling drawings out of drawers and looking at oh them gosh. trying to get refresh my, my memory from the tiny amount of drafting experience <laughs> I had at the time. And, and one of the problems, with, and the effects guys, Ray Douglas, Press the Soul, and company were going to build this thing. And what I'd done is I put something <laughs> that spins in opposite directions on the same axle. And for them to figure out how to do that, I guess, was, was quite a brainer. But they, they did it. They made, they made it work. So it was, it, was, it was very cool. And then that became uh, the flow of things from there on in. Like I say, there was nothing I could draw that they couldn't build. And I didn't look at that as a challenge because God forbid, I actually did draw something. (laughs) Then where am I? Right? Well, I mean, I, part of me would think like, what can I possibly draw that they won't be able to create? Yeah. And then there's, there's almost nothing. There's nothing. So many smart people. And that, that's, the main thing, a show like um, Stargate had such talent mm-hmm. in every corner of, of the production that 
such, we, we were able to produce incredibly high end stuff yeah. all the way through on on like micro uh, time frames mm-hmm. compared to what you should have. Now there were other times when I got tons of heads up, like when we did the um, both the Cull Warrior and the uh, Ancient Atlantean suits. I had uh, I did a lot of here. I did a lot exactly exactly your little friend in the back there. Um, I had heads up on those. Like Rob Cooper came to me at the beginning of the season and said, "We went. We're going to do this Cold War here in episode ten, I believe it was." Yeah. And and you know that's how much lead time I had. He told me right at the beginning of the season, so I was playing with drawings for that, and I actually wound up doing a clay maquette because I sculpt as well. So that we were able to refine that in a decent sort of amount of time. So you have time to look at it and, and say, well, a little more like this and, and make some changes rather than run through it and wind up with something at the end that's kind of like what you wanted, but not really. Well, so, you, some uh, of this you just have to find your way. You know, it's not like Atlantis. It's not a straight line. You no. know, I, I remember a lot of your earlier concept art, you know, and, and I want to get into this in a little bit, but uh, Brad said Snowflake. And it's like, oh, you know, then this way. So, yeah, and it's funny because this whole snowflake thing, and I, I didn't recall it was Brad or Bridget, but regardless, um, oh, okay. we started down that road when we were putting Atlantis together, but I'd already done illustrations of the lost city at the, at the Antarctic, and it had a very different feel to it than what Atlantis wound up being. So honestly, I would have to go back and look at final uh, visit facts to see if there was, you know, any kind of reverse engineering into that that specific look, because mm. uh, it was more like um, spires, you know, yeah. like, like turret turret style roofs and things like that in the original concept of for. Yeah, uh, I remember it being much more much more organic, and then Atlantis the series was Frank Lloyd Wright. You yes, know, so. This uh, I, I've got to stop myself here because I need to I need to go back and and set up some of these pieces in order. Uh, I, I'd like to know um, who uh, what your interests were as a young person. Where are you from, and uh, how young were you when you really started crafting? So I imagine three, but I'd I'd like to hear it from you. Well, no, it wasn't it wasn't as early as that. The Wayback Machine, um, <laughs> fourteen. I think for, I was 14 when I made the decision that art was going to be my thing, probably because I really wasn't very good at anything else. Um, <laughs> very, very quick story. My sister, for Christmas one year, when I was probably around 11, got a John Nagy How to Draw book or, or kit. And it comes with the pad and the, how to draw the covered bridge and all that stuff. Well, she got it and promptly put it away. She did nothing <laughs> with it. And I used to sneak in and get this thing out, and I would draw um, John Maggie's course. And and but I shared it with nobody. I just put put the drawings upside down in the bottom of the box, so hopefully nobody would. And she, she never used it, so that was fine. And then my mother came along one day and went to my sister and said, "Wow, you're drawing really good. I'm glad you're using it." He's like, "What are you talking about?" And that was when uh, I guess the family first realized that I had an interest and the whole bit, but I felt like I was stealing my sister's stuff. So I was very, very much on the QT with it. Um, and then by the time I was, what well, I, I quit uh, the football team in, in, in school 
so that I could go to art classes that happened on Saturdays, which is the same time as our football um, um, matches. Yeah, well, yeah, matches uh, and, and practice practices and stuff like that. So um, I had a note from my mom because there were nude models and I was only 14. So she said yes, and they drove me to this thing every Saturday. And that was when I, I really focused on this as the, the, the path that I wanted to take. And when I was 17, my parents, my father was a banker. He, we spent our life, you know, following him around from bank to bank to branch to branch in different cities. And he was always getting transferred. And um, so he never lived anywhere longer than about five years. And then, and I'm, I'm from Windsor, Ontario, okay. originally. And there's a little town outside Windsor called London. And uh, my dad came home one day and goes, well, I've been transferred again. This is, we were in Winnipeg at this point. And I was just starting grade 11. And I'm like, oh, well, where to this time? And it's like London. And I'm thinking London, Ontario. I was like, what did, what did you do wrong? And he goes, no, 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 London, England. And I, oh. my ears just went, ding. they have one branch of the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce in London. And he was uh, going. He was going there. So he and my mom pulled up stakes, threw me into a, an apartment, and they moved to England. And I was 16. What an experience. I did, I did my last two years of high school, uh, living on my own in an apartment. Well, my sister was with me for a while, but then she, sure. she took off. And uh, uh, as soon as I finished high school, I moved to England as well. And I sent my portfolio over. And my mother was kind enough to go to a couple different universities and drop my folio with them. I, got a, I was actually... Um, Admit, uh, invited to attend uh, three different uh, colleges over there that I applied to and wound up obviously choosing one of those and I spent the next four years living in London and doing fine art every day it was and it, it was so great because if I'd gone to university uh, for fine art in Manitoba for example uh, which was the way it was looking prior to my father being transferred uh, I would have been doing you know art history and art is related to math and yeah, all this other stuff that has nothing to do with learning to be an artist. And instead I wound up with this intensive uh, course, which was just all day, every day, hands-on drawing, painting, sculpting, printmaking, you name it. There was photography, the whole bit. So I, I just did all that stuff instead of having to take unrelated courses that really wouldn't have had much influence on furthering my artistic skills. So it was a very fortunate time. James, how much <clears throat> over these years would you um, think that your your process and what you've created is talent and how much of it was repetition and continuing to work and continuing to refine? Personally, I, I'm... I think, I think it's interest rather than talent because I look back at the drawings I did when I decided that this was the path I was, I'd chosen. And I wonder why I chose this path based on that work. It was awful, but I had an interest and that's what leads you to the, you know, you do anything a thousand times in your pro or whatever they say. It's repetition. It's learning, learning, learning your art form from the ground up. And I was so fortunate to go to England at that time and really just develop my craft and its repetition. I think, honestly, anybody can learn to draw. People go, oh, I can't draw a stick figure. I go, well, how much time have you ever really spent trying? 
if it's not in your wheelhouse, if it's nothing that interests you, then you're not going to keep it up. You're not going to follow up. You're not going to become good at it. So if it's important to you, yeah, you you develop the skill sets. And uh, I've done over my thousand drawings now, so I consider myself a professional. (laughs) I think I did the thousand drawings the first three months of starting it. (laughs) Because literally, I would be there, I would wind up there before before or around five in the morning. Boyd got Oh my God! Boyd used to be the early one, always. And then I sort of uh, bumped him out of that chair. I'd be there at 5 a.m. and I would go home. You know, I'd do my 12 or so and go home at 5 or 6, have a bite to eat, and then I would work until midnight or so or whenever I couldn't focus anymore and then get up and do it over again. But I loved it. It wasn't like, oh, God, I got to go home. I got to work all night. No, you're in your element. I relished it. It was, it was to this day, the best gig I've ever had. I don't think potentially I'm going to be able to repeat that anywhere because so much of this was about the people as well. I mean, having the infrastructure and having the ability to do the things we did was great. And I love the fantasy sci-fi aspect of it, which has kept my creative juices going constantly. But ultimately at the end of the day, if you've got to spend 12 hours plus with people every day and they're not nice people, then you're not going to be enjoying your world. And they, what, what we had there was some of the best, some of the most talented. It was, like I said, it's going to be, it's going to be a hard uh, scenario to reproduce uh, ongoing. Uh, uh, I've been kind of trying to get the band back together on different occasions uh, in different uh, shows since then. And I do work with some of the same people uh, from time to time, which is always wonderful. I always uh, love the tie back to that time, I guess, is really what it comes down to. I did the 100 this uh, past year, right before COVID. We finished up just, we were actually the last people shooting, I think. We had an extension. They shut everything down on the Friday, and we got an extension to shoot for two more days, and then they shut us down. So uh, one more day, rather. We were supposed to have two more shoot days. We shot on the Saturday, brought an extra camera, finished it all up. But I had, uh, you know, Ted Kuchera, who was the decorator for Universe and some of Atlantis. He he was there with me throughout that. And um, Kenny Gibbs was prop mastering with us. Kenny. So, so, yeah. uh, So, I mean, touchstones, right? These are are the people that, that make the day as enjoyable as it, as it can be, quite honestly. Absolutely. No, it, I've lost count of the number of people who have said Rick and Brad and Rob and Jonathan Glassner earlier on, they they set the tone for the environment. And if people weren't willing to have a good time and take a little ribbing here and there, you weren't going to make it. you know. No. And you have no. to for the number of hours that you have to put in. And for well, absolutely. I mean, seasons, you work hard, and then when you can, you play hard. Exactly um, right. And and that was the other thing, too, because of Brad's penchant for golf. And that was a disease (laughs) I I developed fairly early in life, too. I learned to golf at 14. Well, then you were in the club. uh, Pardon the Well, not immediately. I I suffered some car accidents. And when we first started the show, I was was on morphine uh, all day, every day for about the first 10 years I was on the show because of. Yeah, just ongoing wow. problems, back problems and stuff. So managed to get all that fixed up. Uh, but yes, I was I was late to the club, but we went to, it was so awesome. We went to Vegas. We went to um, 
Phoenix. You're in Phoenix, yes. are you not? Yes, yes. sir. Uh, Brad had a place in Phoenix, and yeah. Mark Davidson and myself, and Andy Makita, Paul Mully, John Smith. I mean, we we put they put together these golf trips, and uh, we it was uh, I, I've never experienced anything like it before, and and the camaraderie of these people was spectacular. I mean, Brad was always like the most fantastic host possible. We ate very well. We drank very well, and we, we, uh, some of us golfed very well. <laughs> I, I tended to be a bit streaky. That's that's how they they called it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I'd have my moments, and then it'd be like, oh my god, he just shot 112. What? Jeez. <laughs> oh, in a, in addition to the people, you are creating a visual style that is very much a language. I mean, there is, we have this in season seven and there is a line that goes indirectly from this to something like this. Um, I can't imagine what that process would be like to discover that language and interpret that language iteration over iteration from show to show, you know, using, because they're both, both of these things are the same race. But they're different eras of that race, you know. Um, what was it like sitting down and figuring that out? Who these people, these people in particular, the ancients were, you know, from you know, a hundred thousand years ago to quite possibly several million years ago, you know, that, that had to have been extremely daunting and exciting at the same time. Say more exciting than daunting. Yeah. Um, there, I mean, there's a lot of people that go into making the decisions as to what to look for any given race um, is. Uh, now, mind you, you know, we'd go to new planets, and I'd get to go. Okay, what's this going to be? Right. But, but it became it became sort of automatic. I would sit down if I had to do something Atlantean, then I knew what that was. And if I had to do something ancient, or uh, then it had a different feeling. I I, I didn't consciously go okay well i gotta do this that you just fall into because you once you know what the look is and the feel is it just comes off the pencil it does for me anyway mm. so um yeah but less daunting more more just like okay where, where are we going to go with it now okay. and once you have the rules i mean i would draw shapes i would draw like like the the, the gate and and your little friend behind you uh started out with just, just shapes and and develop the look of, of the armor and then using you can use color as a great way to join things together visually as well so you know a, a universe wound up having the color palette that exists on the, the little fellow behind you right it's generally the overall um color scheme for for the show right there uh, we had our, our golden our golds and bronzes and brasses and and developing the interior of the destiny all the metals and stuff that uh, we, we developed through the paint department to, to represent um, kind of the same things even down to the bed sheets and stuff on the beds i i had uh, ted make sure that all the fabrics that we used had a, a sheen to it so they looked like there was almost like a metallic aspect to that as well so you just you find you find your your design theme and extend it and as as much as you're able to you know pushing the envelope to try to keep that 
uh, visual into all aspects of things, which is why a Kino and, and a tablet at the end of the day kind of feel like brethren. Yeah. Yeah. They, they are, you know, in the, in the lore of the show and, you know, it's, they also come from you and from the all the other people that put them together. So there is that design aesthetic that just kind of carries through and magically, you know, materializes on screen. Yeah. Which artists, James, um, have pushed you the most? Either those in your life or those you have known by their work? Um... When I was in college, I was looking at um, Edward Hopper's work quite a bit. Uh, American painter, early 19th century. His, his paintings were all about light. And really, really, that's what any painting comes down to at the end of the day, or most paintings come down to at the end of the day is light, because obviously you have nothing on the canvas if there's no light uh, shining in your subject matter. So um, I, I liked Hopper's work. I, I, it was so difficult to choose, though, because being in England at that time, I could go to so many different galleries. I went across the pond and went to uh, or the channel, if you will, and went to uh, Amsterdam and saw the Rijksmuseum oh. and saw the Van Gogh Museum. And it's like, there's there's a prolific guy. Crazy? Sure. But prolific? Wow. The amount of paintings. So, I mean, tons of different influences. I love the drawings of Heinrich Clay. Um a master with sort of like fantasy drawings, animal stuff. I back, backtracking slightly. One of the things that interested me strongly as a, as a youth was wildlife work. And I used to do pen and ink drawings where basically I'd be building an animal like a lynx hair by hair with uh, you know, a crow, crow quill uh, pen and ink um, setup. Um, and, and I thought that potentially that was the road I was going to go down was to do the wildlife things but instead i wound up incorporating them into these these drawings here very much like heinrich clay who i didn't know at the time but just putting animals into human um, situations you know and, and bad puns i remember doing one drawing called a wolf in chic clothing which is you know cheesy cheesy but fun right but at any rate um so i would say that there's no one artist that sort of defined or led my direction um i was just inundated with so much especially like i said moving to england at that time it's you you can't move for for landing at a museum or an art gallery over there you know, that's true spectacular you look at the exterior of selfridges which is just an apartment store and it's got all hand carved cornices and sculptural work and i'm like that's an apartment store wow Back when artisans were, were uh, you know, populating the earth. Man. Now they're fewer and further between. It's all done with CNC and the human, uh, you know, touch is removed. To Taken right degree. out of it. Uh, which is why I love, you know, the ability to do things like make something from nothing. I guess that's the main thing that drives any artistic process is to, you know, just... Out of, out of these elements, you produce something 100% different that hopefully uh, will have a voice of its own, you know. So. And that has a quality that, that holds up and still lights up for, you know, <laughs> 17 years later. Exactly. So. Exactly. It goes to show you put the right elements in, the right ones come out. The, the thing that, um, that, that blows me away is that 
the stuff, a lot of this, a lot of these pieces, you know, appeared for seconds on screen. And the, sh- I guess it comes down to, you know, the budget and, and the time that you guys were allowed to put in was, you know, we're not going to just create it so that it falls apart right after it's done because we may need it later. Yeah. And you know what? We're going to do it. So we're going to go big or go home. So we're, we're going to make it right. And we're going to make it feel heavy and weighted in the actor's hands. And, you know, it's going to it's going to help them create the performance. Yeah. And then I think that's a big thing for artists. Robert Carlyle told me that the detail in the uh, in the uni- uh, the uh, destiny set, the interior, he, he came back to me with. This is fantastic. It allows me to really believe in the environment. And even if it's little nuances, like we had rivets that we made that were our own. We didn't want to use earth-based screws and things like that. So those are little plastic plant-on things that were molded and put throughout the ship. And then the lighting on the front of the stairs coming down into the gate room. That was one of the things that Carl mentioned specifically. But The dry ice. It, well, yeah, there's that and... When, when I built the Destiny, I built the whole thing three feet up off the floor. So there's basically um, a crawl space underneath, which allowed us to access the floors, both to put lighting in, to run the special effects through, like steam and whatnot, the little blasters that went off yes, after yes. The, uh, the gate closed. My idea. But <laughs> it, it, not, not, not a great idea in the long run, because number one, it was very costly to run the CO2 every single time the gate shut down. And um, the noise factor that it put out, they had to go around and give people the option if they wanted to wear hearing um, protection. And then makeup had to go in there and paint those things skin tone so they disappear on whoever was wearing them. And then the ADR, you know, yeah. if there was dialogue. Yeah, yeah. nobody says anything when that's happening. It's shh. Oh, um, yeah, there you go. Word. Just let it do its thing. <laughs> uh. but, but, but that attention to detail, I mean, I learned early on on the show that that's just how they rolled. I mean, they were not producing stuff, you know, quickly and, and cheaply. They, they, they had a very, very strong model shop department that, like, as I say, can produce anything you need. And uh, quality was, was the, the name of the game. Because as you said, you don't want to break it down in an actor's hand or you want it to be available to you three episodes down the road, potentially. Right. And you may not know that right now. So... Or repurpose it to something else. We did everything full on. There wasn't as much of that going on 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 Stargate, quite honestly. Um, With the exception of the village in the Thomas special effects stage, that had a facelift every every three weeks, basically. But we'd have to wait for that period of time and have some episodes that were lighter to justify the cost of going in there. Because it was three stories tall in places and both sides of the road and a hundred or more feet long, uh, no matter what you're going to go in and do to it, even if it's only paint and minor upgrades, there's, there's a chunk of money that has to go behind that. So um, they would, you know, the, the writers were obviously very, very smart and, and, and knew how to sort of pace these things within the budget. So that it's like, okay, well, we know that we can go back into the village and redo it in, in four episodes, which also gave me the time you know, necessary to go in and affect the changes in the first place. So, wow. I yeah. remember seeing that place and, and the cave 
and just the different like facades that you guys had, especially with with the village where, you know, if one was from this kind of era, another was from this kind of an era. And then I, I when I had uh, gone, you know, I think um, uh, Avalon three had already been done at that point. So but I mean, you, the, you got the, the ones where you're going to use the entire set. So it had to be more uniform, you know, because you're going to go straight down that whole that whole pathway to the to the big d- double doors in the back. It was just marvelous, you know, and I had remember that that Brad was was talking for years about, you know, wanting to set something up like that because the team comes to a village. And it's like, oh, boy, here we go. A village, you know, it'd be much better to have that existing set, which you guys got in season yeah. nine of SG one and season two of Atlantis and just opened up all kinds of possibilities. Yeah, well, when we took that stage over, they also had um, Blade Trinity had finished shooting in there. And we took the blade set and turned that into uh, a good portion of Atlantis, Atlantis. as well. So, um, this, which which was great and also problematic because if you wanted to affect any changes on the village itself, you had to hope that you weren't going to get bumped out because they were actually physically shooting in the other end of the stage. So then you're you're either working on the bell or you're waiting until they're not shooting. Um, but you know, we we worked around it. The rumor that was. I'd really like to know the answer. the The blade sets were that were those transferred to you guys for one dollar? Is that true? I, you know what, I'm not going to solve your riddle. I'm sorry, okay. I don't know that. I don't okay, know the there answer. we go. That's that's fine. <laughs> the, you you were mentioning um, the process that that you would have on Stargate versus versus some of the other uh, projects that you've done. Was the concept and production design process on Stargate in any ways unique from others that you've worked on? from a time perspective, allowed to do stuff from a quality perspective in terms of the detail that you're allowed to put in? Well, I think every show wants that amount of detail. A lot of the time it'll come down to, are you physically given the time by writers? I mean, on Stargate, they were, they were exemplary. And I, I really, they, they had most of their scripts or at least outlines in hand at the beginning of the season. And we were never sitting around waiting for them or very, very, very rarely waiting for them to give us things so we would have time to do this. Now, other shows that I've worked on since then, <laughs> not always the case. And uh, uh, there's been more than one occasion where uh, they've said, well, we're gonna, we need this thing. And I'm like, well, that's great, but I mean, you got 10 minutes. <laughs> So, you know, <laughs> and they're not literally 10 minutes, but it's like, you need, like you, that, need yeah. up, you need lead up time. If you want a quality yeah. yeah. built, you need to put the time behind it to manufacture it properly. And uh, unfortunately, either the, just the inner workings of the show wouldn't allow it, or the writers weren't um, on the ball enough to get it early to us so that we could produce this, these things properly. And there's been a couple of occasions when stuff has come to camera and I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I have to catch a plane right now. <laughs> but hopefully that didn't happen too much yeah. on Stargate. No, no, that actually, okay. that was not a thing on Stargate at all. Wow. And, I, and as I say, this is something that, once again, we had the infrastructure there. Everybody knew everybody. I mean, you could almost do this by by telepathy or osmosis. It was it was. We, we just worked so well together after that amount of time. It was a family. It really was a family in Starkey. And at the end of the day, 10 years later, you know, that's really what, I mean, I, I do all the other aspects of film for other people and other shows and stuff like that. 
nothing I've ever done has equaled Stargate. And wow. I attribute 90% of that to the people that are there for the Brad Wrights, the Rob Coopers, Paul and Joe. And, you know, it, it's, it's led from the top down by, you know, very, very high quality people, not just talented, but high quality people. So I was very fortunate to have my time there. You took over for Ken Rebell, correct? Uh, yeah, I guess he would have been there in five. I, yes. I've, I've met Ken uh, since. I was going to ask if you ever if you ever spoke with him. Well, um, ooh, uh, Richard Hudolin um, yes. was brought in at one point. I don't know what season I was in. I'm season Stargate, one. But, but no, no, but he was brought in later. He left the show, oh. and I'd been on Stargate for a while, and then he got um, Painkiller Jane yes. as a show. <laughs> And he actually called me and said, hey, uh, you know, I, I'm short. I haven't got, I can't find anybody to do any uh, illustrative work for me. And I'm like, eh, sure, sure. I'll come work right. for you. So I, I went and worked and I worked with Ken. And, you know, I, I look at Ken's drawings. And I'm amazed because you could build something from his illustrations because he puts every nail in the boards and the detail is ridiculous and I, i'm there singing his praises for that and he's turning around going to me going god your work is so it's so loose but it's so descriptive and i'm like <laughs> so you know we were a mutual admiration society it was it was quite quite lovely uh, ken was a great guy the the thing that you that you mentioned earlier that 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 blows me away i'm i'm privileged to have a few of your pieces and the the accuracy by which 99% of them are duplicated, you know, when they're willed into solid reality, they took the time to make it almost precisely what is on the page. And in some cases, precisely what is on the page. They're just magicians, you know, the, those fabricators. And, and that's just it. And that's why I say, you know, there's nothing I couldn't draw that they couldn't build. And I wasn't getting stuff back that was kind of like what I drew. I was getting back what I drew. And this this leads back to that very early comment you made about, you know, it's like Martin Garrow said, you, you, I never get over the the glee, the little kid glee at, at seeing something that I've drawn made into, you know, something you can either walk around in or hold or or what have you. It's there, there's a big charge that I get out of that, and uh, hopefully that never goes away. Were you gifted anything when the show ended of any of this stuff that you designed? No, no. no. I, oh. um, I have. I had a thing of the destiny about that big, which is one of the first little blanks that they put out of the model shop, just as a maquette. Um, I did have the original cast from the Cull Warrior. Okay, but I, I gave it away to a guy in town here who runs. Um, it was sitting in my basement, right? So I'm mm -hmm. like, uh, so a guy that runs a toy shop here in town that has very, very strong uh, sci-fi. <laughs> he does his. The guy does his own dioramas in the store. It's quite amazing. Wow. Um, but I just said, hey, any, any any interest in this thing? He's like, Are you kidding me? He couldn't believe it. It was like his birthday when I think dropped this thing. It was, it was just uh, unfinished. It had one of Boyd's little. Um, tattoos that we were eventually going to put on to the finished piece that has been laid in as a yeah. test. So, wow. but, but for me, um, no, I don't really have anything. I got the little gate they gave us all as, you know, uh, mementos, uh, the Atlantis gate. But other than that, no, I didn't take anything away from me. And as I told you, I, I actually, I don't know, I'm still getting data recovery people to yeah. check into it, but we had that flood and I lost two towers that were sitting on the floor in the basement. 
And right next to them were, unfortunately, what's that saying about eggs in one basket? Exactly. I, Don't I had the them. hard drives. The hard drives that I backed things off onto yeah. were also down there. They all got damaged in the flood. So I'm hoping that a percentage of it will yeah. be, uh, you know, will be able to get back. But I still have almost all my original hand drawings in my sketchbooks and Good. stuff like that. The only thing I ever handed over because I was under contract to do that was the final digital versions that were used to create or go into the show itself. I didn't think they wanted all my uh, little scribbles and uh, half thought out ideas and stuff like that. So <laughs> all that stuff's still taking up space in my garage. It's the, the language of the show, you know, from, from season to season was, was so consistent in terms of the design language. You have something like this yeah. that was created for, you know, a clip show, you know, with a remarkable not act. Just any, I was going to say not just any clip That's show. That's exactly right. With, with Homer <laughs> friggin' Simpson. That's it. And it becomes oh. a core component of all three series. I mean, when you were given the opportunity to design this, I doubt they told you, okay, we need you to design a little plastic piece that looks like a stone that's going to be the methodology for much of our storytelling for the next, you know, seven, eight seasons of the, sh of the franchise. Yeah, no, yeah. They, they had no idea at the time. So, uh, you know, it came in and that was for Citizen Joe and that's right. potentially where it was going to live and die. And then they, uh, I guess, just liked the... The ability to use it uh, potentially Correct. as a plot forwarding device, right? Uh, that's that, what it comes as down to. As much as anything, you know? That's right. And that's what they called the uh, PF, PFDs, too, the little um, things that they used on Atlantis, the portable Walkman the, uh, thing. The Palm Pilots. Yeah. Yeah, which the were, Game Boys. Which were referred to as uh, PFDs or plot forwarding devices uh, in, in, the, <laughs> in the meetings and stuff. They're tricorders, so, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It's the nature of the beast. Something's going to show up on this. It's going to take us into the next scene, right? Right, exactly right. Uh, Teresa wanted to know, are there any sci-fi series or shows in particular which provided you with inspiration over the years? Well... I mean, I got to go back to my my two favorites. One director, Ridley Scott. Oh, you, you get you get yes. to pick the two. Go ahead, you tell me. Uh, well then, well if it's Ridley Scott is one, then George Lucas. I mean, no, no, I'm just saying out, out of his works, Alien. Oh, Alien and Runner. Alien, oh, and absolutely. Runner. And that's absolutely. I mean those those two shows are basically the premise for almost every sci-fi thing that's been done since, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there are people who have found other creative ways to represent stuff, but I mean, when I was doing the destiny, it was, there was, there are some homages to Ridley to in there. Yeah. I mean, having, having just like that, the central communication room with five uh, quarters going off of it, they don't look anything like his, but the idea of that layout, um, is it's so it's so smart because it allows you to confuse the audience so easily into well you walk them down here you turn a corner oh they go out there and you turn a corner you don't know where you are anymore and it really spoke to being able to make the destiny with one basically one set in one stage and i filled the stage um feel like a ship that just goes on and on and on and on and on and you know ridley was largely behind that sort of feeling. Andy Makita in the very beginning of Aaron did that move through the ship up through the floors and everything. I was just, 
I, I was watching that and I'm getting chills and going like, oh, this is so cool. And it looked <laughs> monstrous. Like there was just, you could just go on to different areas in the whole place. So. You know, from a, from a viewer perspective, I would never look at Destiny and say Nostromo. I would say Nautilus, you know, 20,000 yeah. Leagues Under the Sea. But from a production design standpoint, in terms of layout and everything else, you're right. It is Nostromo yeah. in terms and, yeah, of how you not, Yeah, and I wasn't speaking set. to his I wasn't speaking to his design aesthetic. I was uh, speaking to just how clever he had been with putting that ship together. I mean, the one area that I loved the most in the alien ship was that area where it was raining inside where uh the interior. Uh, he, went, yeah. he went to look for the cat and there's all the chains yeah. and condensation because the ship is so big inside. You, you, I'm like, oh my god, that's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you know when we when we did the um, seed ship, the ones that were the one that the, our little aliens were living on. That um, yes, the Ursini. Yes, the yeah. Ursini. Yes. Thank you, thank you, Mister <laughs> Database Central. <laughs> um, Not always right. Oh no, no, you're, you're going to get ninety percent right compared to <laughs> to me. I, my memory for that kind of detail is not not what it should be, perhaps, but. Um, that ship being just a mechanical ship, that was fun for me because I could create spaces that, you know, people weren't supposed to theoretically be in and they were just really It's narrow, a factory. Tight court, exactly. Yeah. And then setting up that one shot of the um, gates being built into, uh, that was something I really wanted to do. I did a map for that and they weren't sure they were going to have the money to be able to afford the digital uh, work for that particular scene but at the end of the day they, they acquiesced and put it in and uh, it was so funny too because they pulled out uh, Volker and uh, uh, Vol I think it was Volker that pulls Rush into that room and says hey, look and thought he'd Here be all is. excited and Rush is like yeah whatever <laughs> yeah well you know what I'm I'm going to be perfectly honest with you here uh, I'm, I'm grateful that we got that shot but the sequence was a letdown for me because I was wanting to see the gates being assembled, you know, and I'm sure it, it had nothing to do with the episode, you know, so I can understand why you wouldn't, you guys wouldn't have had the budget to do that, but at least we got to see the space. So that that's was what really I was cool. on the same page as you, David, absolutely on the same page. This as you. is the I chance. Mean, I, I would have loved if this thing was still, you know, digitally automated. So you yeah. could have seen, you know, pieces going together and, and doing things, but just to have that one thing where you could see the gates. Yeah, exactly. You can see the assembly line, you know. Kind of tells the story. Exactly right. Uh, Akos wanted to know, and this this goes back to the universe gates. Um, when you designed the universe gate, and this is kind of esoteric, but I think it can lead kind of like back into the larger conversation in terms of aesthetic. When you designed the universe gate, the oval shapes on on both sides of them, were they deliberately or just unconsciously perhaps meant to be a connection to the the terminal that these attach to i mean was that all kind of like the same design aesthetic no <laughs> in a word in a word no okay. um, no it was that was just so if, if there is a like feel it's, it's what we talked about earlier it's just developing a visual language for things if it's ancient it's got a, this sort of feel it's that i never at any time said oh, oh this i could use these elements from the communication stones and put them in there so, uh, no, that, that was just a coincidence. Okay. Interesting. What ship design over the seasons was your favorite? Come on, really? <laughs> I had to be fair it's the to ask. It's the but... destiny. 
that uh not only oh there it comes here it comes so yeah, we're gonna duplicate <laughs> the shot from the opening episode no i'm kidding there you go a fan uh, created these i'm sorry a fan created these oh really yes. nicely done and, and it has the scorchings from the from the impacts, you know. It's, oh, and I saw you got you had a shuttle with it too, right? Yes, they're uh, they're up on um, well, not not on here right now, but um, they're they're separate. So and and also one of the Nakai uh, drone ships as well. Nice, nice. You have inspired yeah, the, so I mean, many fans. That was one of the things that I truly did love about the show is is being able to design all the biz effects as well. I mean, uh, since since the point I started on the show, um, I don't think there was one vis effect that I didn't have a hand in on some level or another. Um, Obviously, and I would start things, and they didn't necessarily work out exactly as drawn in the vis. Sometimes it was cost issues. I know there was a drawing that I did Oh, Lord, SG-1, way back, and it was a space graveyard. And I did this rendering, It took, and it, it took me an inordinate amount of time because the amount of detail I put into it. And it, it was like, which kind of ships were the Asgard ships, I think, all wow. blown and floating in space. And I, I did this ultra-wide thing, picturing that they'd be able to do sort of like a move through the mat and a little bit. Brad comes in and he goes, I'm sorry. That's like a $50,000 biz effects cost to do that as, as a 3D element. I, went, oh, right. I told him I was going to wear a black armband for the rest of the week. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, that, that, that was about uh, one of the few that uh, I knew of that I'd done that you know wasn't going to go through. But uh, I still love that drawing. It's very cool. I would love to have a look at it at some point. Um, You've probably seen it. I've probably I mean, seen it. It's it's out there. The um, the I would I would think that you would have a an idea for okay if you want this it's going to take this number of hours for me to produce a selection of drawings to create that you know I would think that you would be able to say okay my my creative output. You probably can math it out pretty well, I would think, that you would have to be able to. Like you would say, you know, you would come in at 5 in the morning, leave, you know, at midnight and have put out X number of of pieces. Do you have like a specific kind of output rhythm or is it just piece to piece every, in terms of what's now, going every, on? Every, every drawing is its own thing. It's every, its own thing. every work of art, everything that I do. Um, I, I can't sit down and say, okay, well, I'm going to need three hours to finish this. I might have a ballpark in mind but like i say some drawings you'll sit down and they'll just flow mm. and i'll be done in a couple hours and other drawings how you'll find either physical issues like perspective or scale or, or things like that that if you're not getting them right that'll bug me and i gotta mm. keep at it until it it, it looks like I, I kind of intended to or it looks believable so the the time frame varies hugely I would say. What was the most time-intensive prop or costume that you put in on the franchise? Ideally, one of each. And I, I mean, like Rob, like you were saying with like Cooper, you know, you were given heads up on on certain pieces, so that they would probably lean towards them. But I'm very curious as to your, as to what you would. Well, I mean, recall. the Call Warrior was one of the first. Uh, when it comes to character design, I I did the Ori Warriors yes. and the Pri- the Priors. 
concept and development for scarification and everything else, their look, Julian Sands, his whole build. Uh, the Cull Warrior itself was one of the biggest ones. Because it was the first one we put through, I think that came through at $80,000 for the first prototype that Dan Payne wore. Um, and that was, you know, I, I was going to the model shop every other day to see what progress there was and deal with issues on the, the, the shoulders of the firing weapon, the cod piece. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what'd you do today, hon? Oh, never mind. <laughs> it has to get done by someone. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but the, our, our little friend behind you, um, that has two different incarnations. You've got the Atlantean yes. version there, uh, the original version, uh, which was in Asgard, I believe, um, had a different helmet. That's all I did is redesign the helmet, and I think they might have touched the paint differently or something. But the the um, the V's here on the sides; those were a part of the original too, because those really look like chevrons. Yeah, no. Once again, I think that's probably more uh, just coincidental than anything. Oh, okay. yeah, I mean, once you see, once you see something, you can yeah. read into it. Um, but I mean, character design was always um, fun, and I, I don't look at them as being like one was more difficult than the other. So each one had its own set of problems to solve, and fortunately, you know, after I did the drawing. I didn't have too much to do in a, from a problem-solving standpoint because, like I, like we've said, the the varying departments were just so good that you know they handled it, and, and I would go in and say, "Well, this maybe needs to be a little more like that, or can we finish this a little differently?" And stuff, but for the most part, um, it, it would just it just followed a process rather than uh, I would say being difficult. As far as props go, one of my favorites was Ronan's gun. Uh, I had a lot of, I went up to him first and I met, met him and, and Jason's like, you know, I'm 6'3 and I'm like looking up at him. That's not a feeling I'm used to. Uh, so I was like, well, I got to design this weapon for you and the whole bit. So I got a sense of his skill. I'm like, this is going to have to be a really big gun. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, so I went back and actually that I worked off of a peacemaker for that. Oh, old really? revolver. Yeah, that was the yeah. initial uh, wow. step forward, and that's somewhere that I'll I'll try to use real world reference because these are things that have to work on whatever level. Whether it's just you know how to, how does a hand grip work in your hand? Same thing with swords and stuff. God, I did so many swords over the years. You did, but, but I mean, you uh, did Excalibur for crying out loud. Well, and and oddly, Antares sword and a bunch yeah. of other and the, and the Wraith General sword, yeah, and the whole bit. Um, and oddly enough, it led me to an interest in forging, which I, I, I know I haven't done it myself yet. I've done a little tiny bit, but not making weapons. But it's something that's on my bucket list for down the road is to build myself a little forge and make myself a couple of big swords. <laughs> Any chance, I, I know um, that MGM, uh, that, that a, a, a design or a, um, a treatment was sent over to MGM for a potential art book of yours. Any chance of your Stargate art coming out? <laughs> you know, uh, they have the assets. Diff- it was a different time then. I wrote, okay. I wrote 100 pages of a book fully illustrated with all the drawings and descriptors and, you know, which episode and what it meant the whole bit. And I went down and I met with 
it was actually, I was almost at a, at a point where I was going to start pushing through. And then Sony came in and became partnered with MGM. And when they did that, apparently Sony has a book division. MGM didn't care. They were like, yeah, go ahead, pretty much. But Sony came in and it's like, no, 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 no. You want to proceed to this. You got to pay us $50,000 for licensing. And I'm like, well, how be, how be you let me produce the book? We'll put it out and I'll pay you out of the proceeds. And then everybody wins. And you can actually make, some, make a few bucks here and, you know, put out a, a decent product that, that speaks to the, uh, the show. And they were, they were very adamant about, you know, money first. So that died its own little unnatural death. Yeah, it is. Especially since I, you know, I, I spent two and a half months, I think, working on it, getting it to the stage it was at. And had Paul Brown assisting me at the time, a mem- a Legends Memorabilia. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you met Paul, you know him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was intrinsic in, you know, moving that forward to that point that as soon as, you know, they, they put down the $50,000, you know, pay to play, um, that just all sort of folded up and went away. Makes but, me sick uh, thinking about it. Well, and, I got, and, I got like to see I say, it. Though, it was, it was cool. a different time, David. Right yeah. now, I could go online right now, type in Stargate artwork, James Robbins, and and fill the screen with, with almost every drawing that would have been put into the book anyway. So I don't know that there's even that much of a need for it, if you will. But they're the images themselves. They're not your... They they are they, they don't, don't have my your, take on it. They don't have your roadmap. No, and your roadmap it. is key. <laughs> so the roadmap is what makes it interesting. So Oh, I mean I, I think so, but but like I say, if it's about just the artwork, anybody can view That's almost, true too. Almost everything I did at any time online now. It's like and in preparation for this, I was trying to remind myself, I go, What was episode did I do that? And I went and I'm like, Holy crap, <laughs> here's my portfolio. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your charcoal pieces. I remember you saying that charcoal was your, I think you said it was your favorite medium to work in. What were some of your favorite charcoal pieces from Stargate? It's my favorite from a development standpoint. Let's put it oh. this way. I, I love all mediums. I'm actually, I, the thing I love to do the most is oil painting, but obviously there is no time for that kind of thing to develop the concept work that way. So it was charcoal drawings because they're largely forgivable. I can go in with charcoal and do a drawing and I can erase back with a needed eraser right back to the page. And it's like, it was never there and adjust and amend. If you're working on pencils with pencils, which I did as well, the work tends to be tighter unless I'm working on a huge thing. The work tends to be tighter and there's less room for error, if you will. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it just became my methodology. I could do something nice and big, like I was using 30 by 40 inch uh, drafting vellum. Wow. To do the uh, drawings on. And I had a drafting table and I would just micro you know, use the drafting dots on the corners and put my drawings up and work on them. I could photograph them, turn around, put them in the computer and start working up the color and the texture and the lighting and the mood or whatever it was that that particular thing had. Putting in, you know, space effects and, and and whatnot onto you know like drawings of the prometheus for example when i first did that i remember you created a um in enemy mine you created a a landscape of uh, uh ruined uh jaffa armor you know that the unas oh, had yes, cannibalized yes, on the beach the beach shot yeah yeah there was, that was a fun, fun stuff there prometheus 
Yes. Where we it's our first Earth spacecraft. You know, aside from you know the the F three zero two, which is a, a fighter, our our first carrier. What were your inspirations for Prometheus? Um, basically, I was I was given my inspiration. It was to be um, a ship that had alien technology in it, but we didn't see that alien technology, and the mandate was that it felt utilitarian uh, function over form, and that it was more like an Earth-based battleship or something along those lines. So it's not a pretty ship. I mean, I don't even think it is, quite honestly. But uh, I, I did like the front end. It sort of got that uh, bird of prey sort of like drop. Yeah, drop it's got like a swoop front. to it, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's it was a short-lived ship. <laughs> yeah, <You know? laughs> three seasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, quite honestly, Peter Bodnaris came up with the Daedalus. And I, I think that was a much sort of prettier. You did not come up with Daedalus. No, Daedalus is not me. No, that was Peter Bernard's. I think that was, he, he wound up doing three. I mean, he did, he did a couple ships for Space Race as well, I believe, because there were just so many ship designs we needed in that. But uh, yeah, that, that was, the Daedalus was Peter. And it was an interesting uh, leap. We just we just basically took the top off the ship and shrunk it a little bit and, and widened it. I remember thinking turtle the first time I saw it because we see it kind of overhead from behind. I'm like, oh, they got themselves a turtle ship. You know, it was it was. <laughs> I, but, I was just curious what what all it looked. It reminded me almost of a uh, aircraft carrier. Yeah, because it was so much flat deck over yes. the top. I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe that's where you keep your your fighters. You know, and yeah, them down he's got them on the sides. Space. So I've yeah. got. Um, a uh, the the fan creations of these things that back there seven thousand pieces of styrene. Oh my god! He, he wow. said seven thousand. I don't physically know how he did it, but um, it's just amazing the the artistry that that you guys helped uh, uh, encourage. In, in the fan community. I'm sure you've seen some of this stuff out there floating online. Just the, 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 the care that has been put into so much of the work that, that you guys created. They wanted to echo in these, these, these yeah. little guys right here. Very, they wanted very, to echo very, it. Well, I mean, the, the, the reason that the show went 17 years. I mean, it's not, not a surprise. It's the fan base. Mm. You guys are in, in the same way that Stargate is its own beast. The fans of Stargate are, are their own beast. Um, so dedicated, so I mean, here we are, ten years later, you know, still talking about it. Mm-hmm. And and I guess potentially there's there's something in the loops for the the fourth incarnation. I'm hopeful. SG yeah, four for the win. That'd be pretty awesome. I think it really would. What about the Supergate? What about the Supergate, David? Very very different. It's almost like a collection of chevrons. You know, um, which is exactly though all those pieces apparently, um, and, and my memory of this particular build in time is not great. I know that um, we were given the mandate that each one has to be at least the size of a cargo ship because they were going to put a cargo ship into it as a missing piece and stop them from finishing the super game. So basically, that gave us pseudo scale. And then obviously it had to be large enough to allow one of the Ori motherships um, to come through as well. And those things were 
pretty big in the, in the yeah. information. The Supergate from Beachhead is not the scale of the Supergate that exists in Camelot. We look at it, it's almost like they created one super gate and then got the bigger pieces because Sam is is stand has to stand on one of the pieces in Camelot and she is dwarfed by it. So yeah. it's almost like they created one super gate and then got those pieces through to create a bigger super gate. It's a great Possibly. design. Possibly. Uh, and and honestly, that there wasn't a whole lot of if I can actually admit to this, wasn't a whole lot of design aesthetic okay. into it. They needed to obviously be able to repeat all the way around. Each piece was, I'm trying to think that they were typical. My memory says that, that I basically, I created one piece in 3D. And, and I did, I, did, I do some 3D modeling as well. A lot of the props, smaller props and things I've done, Man. I do in 3D. Wow. Um so yeah, you got to have the talents. If I just worked with a pencil, dude, I'd be a dinosaur. So yeah, I, I had no, to I get a little bit of the, the digital skills going, yeah. right? Uh, but uh, yeah, like I say, I, I, I recall a rendering that I did with one of the pieces sort of flying in the gate, almost fully assembled. I'm guessing this was the last piece that I'd drawn. And then uh, there's uh, a cargo ship. <laughs> Shoved uh, into chill, it. Chill. But Bala was in the cargo ship, right? Bala was. Oh, okay. There you go, Bala. See my memory. That's all good. Um, but uh, I did remember it was a cargo ship there. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. What do I get? <laughs> yes, you win for sure. Um, how long did it take for Atlantis to evolve? I know we talked about it a little bit because the first iteration of it was going to be in a base in Antarctica rising and then meeting Anubis's fleet and then probably blowing them all to hell. Um, and then it got moved to the Pegasus galaxy. The design uh, radically changed from Lost City into um, into Rising 1 and 2. Tell us about that whole process a little bit more, if you don't mind. Well, I can tell you certain amounts about it. Um, that was Bridget's show to bring to a reality as a designer. Obviously, I did a lot of the illustrative work that led to some of the finishes, but uh, the, the set was all Bridget. Okay. Um, for the first three seasons. And I finished up the last two seasons and I kind of reinvented the Wraith a bit. Well, I invented the Wraith anyway, because those, those were my babies, bringing the, the, the character concept and design to life, um, which I think for an alien race that was prosthetic, I think that really worked beautifully uh there's a lot of times you see aliens who are, are you know you guys in rubber suits and it's like eh, eh, i'm not buying it which i think was also what led brad to the decision to have no prosthetic aliens in the universe and to go with full fully realized visual effects versions of our aliens well you're out there um on the fringes of pra of practically reality nothing is going the, the excuse in, in our galaxy and in pegasus was the ancients created all of us so we all have kind of a basic design template whereas on the edge of the universe nothing out there looks like us yeah, so new and, rules. and the sec the the technology had obviously you know gone far enough that you could then pull those kinds of things off on a reasonable budget for a television yeah so well and, and the uh what was it? Rob came to me with the idea for our blue space aliens. 
You'll know the race. The Nakai, which were Nakai, never actually named see? on screen. They were fish-like, and they were cool as hell, man. They were well, fish-like because they were based on a thing called a barrel fish, which is a real thing that doesn't look like it should be a real thing. It's got this... I don't know. You, you can look them up online. Look up barrel fish later on when you get a second. But they've got a clear dome for a head that the eyes float inside of. And Rob brought me this drawing and goes, yeah, what is something like that. And I'm like, Wow, really? And I used to get, like, there was a tsunami at some point during Stargate, and I had four different people. It Basically, it washed up all this stuff from the bottom of the ocean that you're not used to Supposed seeing. Supposed to see, yeah. <laughs> and I had all these people sending me pictures of this stuff going, oh, dude, you got to check this out. This is like the stuff you draw. Wow. So, and sure enough, the, the barrel fish is a, a, a very, very strange anomaly. But you also get into, you know, creatures that light up on their own and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, they have to create uh, we, their own we light. Have, we have an alien uh, landscape in our oceans. That, yeah. That, uh, you know, it, it certainly helped with uh, the, the Nikai's design, I would say that. And then so the ships cool. and stuff like that, all the different ship designs, those are always fun to do. The ancient drone, you designed that, correct? Correct. The number of pieces that went into that, because I sold the prop, and you have you have the, the head on top of it that kind of looks like this, yeah. then you have the bulb underneath, and then the veins attached to the sides, and then the, the tentacles on the back, every single link to that, you know, had to be fabricated on its own because they, they shrink as they go down. That was just a marvelous... Uh, design. I can't fathom what that took to create. Uh, once again, I just, I just totally take my hat off and, and bow deeply to the incredible talents of the people in the, in the model shop who are able to, ongoing, produce spectacular results. And uh, you know, VisFX were able to also take the renderings and really mm-hmm. bring those those things to life too. So, uh, yeah, I, and, and as I say, David, I've, I've never found this level in any show since. And, and I've done a few over the last decade. Absolutely. But, uh, but uh, like I said, I peaked early. This was a, a fantastic <laughs> place to start, but it, it's certainly a high bar to set to ever hope to, to get back to. And uh, I'm, I'm just so thankful that I had a chance to, uh, you know, spend a decade of my life in this world. How many designs did Destiny go through before Brad uh, said Chevron and shoved that napkin in your face? I probably did 20 or more different renderings. Okay. And a lot of them never really got past basic shapes because that's what we were right. talking about. I think there was a large push for it to be disc-shaped initially. Oh. Um, yeah, something more like uh, the Independence Day yeah. ship, if you the will. the motherships, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there were... There were three or four iterations of that at least. And then some other ones that were longer. One of them looked that I did, uh, you know, the images that I sent you the other day from that. There's the one in there. The last one is there's one in there. It's a charcoal drawing and you can see that the front is still the disc. It actually sort of looks like NCC from the side angle. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if you get, once again, you got to rip somebody off, you know, <laughs> established players right uh but but then it had more of the long rock because we had two camps one was wanting something longer and one was wanting the the ring thing and then all of that just went out the window and brad said here look at this and there's this little sort of swoopy design that i 
played with. And honestly, as soon as he gave me the shape, I think I, I did two more iterations. That was it. Wow. And that was pretty much the destiny. I mean, we, we had to flesh out details as story ideas developed. Like, where is the observation room uh, in relation to uh, the, the big dome room where the, the glass had broken out? And uh, where part winds up getting, uh, yeah, the um, uh, the for for plants and everything. I can't think of the word yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, and then place. the shuttle, you know, and down in front, exactly. And we got shuttles to, to the able, side, but they want to be able to see the shuttle taking off from the observation deck uh, as well. And 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 those things, you know, obviously led to the physicality of the space. And then I developed interior uh, before we we did the actual. Uh, layout of the ship, I had developed uh, corridor concepts for how they ran through the ship and stuff. And then I worked backwards from those into the, the physical set. But I did learn uh, a very, very valuable lesson from Richard Hudolin um, after the fact. He had done the SGC in stage five and it was an, a 28 story facility on one floor. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, and for how many years did they keep that the, the, the suspension of disbelief going? Long time. From but a design used, from a movie in the 90s. Exactly. But the main thing that I learned was he used every square inch of the stage to the point where the entry doors to the stage were finished so that they looked like part of the STC. That door that swings out at the end that, you know, it says, you know, uh, emergency only or something, whatever it did. You know, lead, lead, leads out to, to the, the world of, the, of everything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah you go uh, down. So for people listening, the, the control room. You take a, uh, you go down and then take a right. That that corridor led correct. to outdoors and to yeah. Atlantis. If you kept on going, yeah, man. And and the same thing with Destiny. So when I built it in the stage, obviously I couldn't use standard doors, but I, I went like wall to wall in there as much as I was able and uh, utilized every square inch. And like I say, by the time the, the actors would get into it and then they'd finish blocking a scene or something and they're like, they're going to go back to their trailers and, and while the uh, number twos get in and they, they set everything up. They'd be like, okay, now how do I get out of here again? <laughs> and seriously, they, they would get lost in the set. What a compliment. Like, Perfect. If I can get them lost and they're here, then the audience doesn't stand a chance. Audience so, doesn't. No, yeah. it was. I, I was lucky to have seen all three uh, uh, shows sets, and it was absolutely marvelous. And it when it got canceled, man. I mean, we don't have to get into that very much, but it, I mean, you guys were intending to amortize that over five, you know, seasons. Yeah. You know, oh you yeah, could, we built with steel. We put in, you know, the basic substrate for the set after the floor. The floor is all wood and, and little pony pony wall style builds. But everything else that went up and held up the second level is all structural steel. Was it the so same you, set you from one to two? don't do that for short term. This is true. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, because uh, Stargate Command got moved at one point. Yeah, yeah. Stargate Command became uh, the bridge... And we moved the shuttle out of stage two into stage five. And what I did there is the shuttle door had that big working wheel and gears and you'd push it in and it'd make this clanging noise and it'd rise up. So I put the bridge entry directly above the shuttle and used Got the it. same door, except now it's kind of cool. The door actually can drop into the floor. 
And that, that was, was so when, cool. when Rush first found the bridge. It's like, well, how do you do that for real? This is how, right? Well, it's at the top of the ship, you know. Part of the thinking, where's the door going to go? It's going to go down. (laughs) Exactly. And because of the fact that we already had it built, I'm like, wow, this gives me the perfect opportunity. A little bit get smart because there was like, this door drops down, those doors open. (laughs) They're ancients. They did everything wild. You know, they don't make any sense. (laughs) But they do. Uh, Raj had asked the question about, uh, did you create any other designs for Destiny? So thank you, Raj, for submitting that. And uh, last but not certainly not least, um, James, anything that you're currently working on or that's going to come out soon that you can share with us? Uh, well, I did the last season of The 100, which has already aired. Yep. Uh, after six, six seasons, I guess I'm a show killer. I mean, they, they bring me in at the end, right? You know, killed universe, killed Atlantis, <laughs> killed, killed SG1. No, <laughs> not true. Killed and SG1 one got DVD movies, so there you go. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I did a Disney movie as well, which is a remake of a 1979 kids' movie, which was very, it was more intensive than I certainly had anticipated at the beginning going into it. Um, there is uh, Disney has a very large level of oversight and approval. Not surprising. And uh, well, to the degree that it was, it was a little surprising to me. But really, no. okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, they kept me pretty busy, but it was it was also very fun. And I'm I'm not going to go and say too much about it because it's still in in production. Okay. But uh, there is an Egyptian element to this. That uh, when when I was going in and getting the uh, getting the gig, I'm like, dude, Egyptian? Hello. Here, let me <laughs> show you ten years a, a thousand pieces. <laughs> exactly. Jeez. Now, what do you want your mothership to look like? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Earth-based Egyptology. Got it. Got it. Wow. But we actually had an Egyptologist checking our homework on this. So oh, how cool. We we produced pieces. And that's all I'm going to say is we produced pieces for this Egyptian okay. exhibit, which are in my opinion, uh, reproduction quality. Like like you could put these in a museum in place of the real thing because that's the level of detail we went to in it. Did you get to see the physical results? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. How cool. Uh, they, they, they look spectacular. Um, and it's going to be it's going to be a great, fun little movie. Uh, it's, uh, you know, our, our heroes and leads are in the 14-year-old age bracket. So it's okay. very much a Disney kid movie. Um, and it was, it's called Under Wraps. And like I say, it's a remake of an existing 1979 okay. one. And I will say that our mummy kicked the crap out of the mummy from the original. <laughs> but, uh, I think so did a lot of other things, but that, that in particular. You know, well, the mummy's the, one of the heroes that uh, you, know, you got to make sure that's a No, absolutely. That would be a key, so I would think. Fun. Yeah. This has been a pleasure, sir. I I... I had a long list of, of things that I would like to talk to you about. I would love to have you back later in the year to talk about a few more selections, if you wouldn't mind. Um, it's been tremendous to be able to discuss some of these pieces with you. Well, I'm very honored that you uh, included me in your, your list of people to chat with. And uh, this has been fun. Uh, it's always nice to ramble down memory lane, especially where it concerns Stargate. Uh, I don't know how many times I go, oh, you know, on Stargate, you know, we used to do this. We used to do that. It was a quality product. You guys created something that will withstand the test of time and be, you know, re-examined generations to come. I was just the lucky 
lucky contestant because I was the only one that was designer for all three. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. How good is that, right? Yeah. So. And and thank you for helping me to fill up my house with so many toys. So. Yeah, yeah. If you like if you like Egyptology, I might have some other stuff for you down the road. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much to James C. D. Robbins for making this episode possible. He is one of the original reasons why I wanted to do this show. I uh, didn't really get a chance to interview him over at GateWorld, and now he was mine, and it was fantastic. So well worth the wait. Thanks so much to James for that. If you really enjoyed uh, this episode, I appreciate it if you'd click the like button. It really makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. If you plan to watch live, I recommend giving the bell icon a click so you'll be the first to know of any schedule changes, which will probably happen all the time. And uh, that's what we have there. We still have a giveaway. You still have a few minutes left to submit, depending on your time zone. One of these communication stones is a screen-use prop. The other is screen accurate. It's a replica. And for the month of January, Dial the Gate is giving away the replica. So to enter to win, you need to use a desktop or laptop computer and visit dialthegate.com. Scroll down to submit trivia questions. Your trivia may be used in a future episode of Dial the Gate. Please note the submission form does not currently work for mobile devices. Get this to me before February 1st uh, uh, Eastern time. So New York, you know, East Coast, U.S. And uh, we will make sure to add your name to the uh, uh, list of people that we're going to... Um, Submit the drawing for this. I'll be notifying you in the next couple of days if you are the winner. We have fan art. Age Old Traveler by Jet Freak 7. This digital art was designed by Jet Freak. The model's Chili Trek background by Sewer Pancake. There's probably a story there. And Atlas. So thank you for the submission. And Dial the Gate now offers merchandise. We're brought to you every week for free, and we do appreciate you watching. And if you want to support the show further, buy yourself some of our themed swag. We're now offering t-shirts, tank tops, sweatshirts, and hoodies of various sizes and colors for all ages at Redbubble. We currently offer four themed designs and hope to add more in the future. Please note that the, um, the word cloud designs, there's a version with a solid white background and another version that is transparent behind the letters. So just uh, be selective of those when you're picking. The solid background is typically used for when you have darker colors, as with our Event Horizon background here. So that's why that's used on the right. But we wanted you, we wanted you to have options, so be on the lookout for that. Checkout is fast and easy. You can use your Amazon or PayPal account. Just visit dialthegate.redbubble.com. And thank you for your support. And thank you for tuning in for this episode. We really appreciate it. And uh, this has just been terrific to have uh, James on. little snippet uh, of the very beginning of our conversation before we started rolling, coming after the end credits. Up next, Gary Jones interviews Colleen. And she's going to tell you about her teddy bear story. I appreciate you tuning in. I'll see you live next weekend. Yes, before we do that, let me show you who's going to be coming along next weekend. Where are our guests? David DeLuise, Pete Shanahan, Sunday, February the 7th at 11 a.m. Pacific time, followed by Corin Nimick. We've rescheduled him for this Sunday, February the 7th at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That's what we've got heading your way. I'm David Reed for Dial the Gate. Thanks so much for tuning in, 
and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. Good day. How are we doing? Not too badly yourself. I am well, sir. This nice is so decorating. exciting. <laughs> nice you got going on there. I, I feel somewhat responsible. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's so it's so funny. It's like one of the reasons that I wanted to do this show was to sit down and have this conversation with you. And and partly um because so much of the stuff that is in my house came out of your head. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, yeah. I see a few things in the background there that I had a hand in, definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's quite the menagerie. Yes. Yeah, it is. You got yeah. some nice toys. Is that a Telchak device you've got? Oh it is. This is. That's the one from um, 200. Because okay. that, so that one actually lights. That one has the little selection of, um, of the little set of uh, triple... Um, Triple triple A batteries in the side of it and generate the little thing. I need to change the batteries and then they'll. But do oh, two thousand four, right? It still lights, James. Oh my god! Isn't that something? That's that's very functional. Better yet, what do you got a ZPM in there? (laughs) I think 